black notes of condemnation. Our Lord had something negative to say about all the churches except for the church in Philadelphia and the church at Smyrna. And it's the church at Smyrna we come today. A church that proved itself faithful even in the face of death. And the message to Smyrna begins with the assurance that God knows what's going on. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by which those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, as you've already seen this morning, Smyrna was a rich and influential Roman city. It rivaled Ephesus as a hub of commerce and far exceeded it as a place of beauty and culture. It was known as the crown of Asia. In fact, the beautiful temples and public buildings on the hills surrounding the harbor formed a literal crown around the city and was recognized as such by authors of the period. The city had been founded in 1000 B.C. and then destroyed by fire in 600 B.C. Three centuries later, Smyrna had been rebuilt as one of the few pre-planned cities of the world. It was therefore known for its straight, broad streets and beautiful architecture. In fact, the main street through town was known as the Street of Gold. It featured a temple to Zeus on one end and a temple to Sybil on the other. Well, the 21st chapter of Revelation, John is going to note that the New Jerusalem will have streets of gold. And he may have been pointing out that God's holy city will be much lovelier than the loveliest of earthly cities. But for now, Smyrna held the title to being the loveliest of cities, and her residents were proud of that fact. It also had the distinction of being one of the most loyal cities in the Roman Empire. Long before Rome had become a superpower, the residents of Smyrna had constructed a temple to the goddess Roma and to the spirit of Rome. And in 26 AD, Smyrna won the right to be the home of the Temple of Tiberius, one of the most splendid temples ever built for emperor worship. Well, add to that the fact that Smyrna was home to a large, influential Jewish population that was extremely antagonistic to Christianity, and you get some idea of the problems that were facing the church there. A church that would have been about 40 years old at this time, having been most likely founded when Paul was in Ephesus, during which time it's recorded that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. With the church at Smyrna, our Lord identifies himself as the first and last. He who was dead and has come to life. Now, obviously, he couldn't have identified himself more appropriately. For as we've seen, Smyrna was the city that had literally died and come back from the dead. 
And the Christians there would soon be, if they weren't already, facing death because of their faith. But our Lord assures them that he knows what's going on in Smyrna. He knows what they're going through. He knows the tribulation they're enduring, the crushing weight of opposition and outright persecution that they're under. And he says he knows their poverty. Now, there are two words for poverty in Greek. One refers to the condition we generally think of as poverty, that of having to do without you know, the luxuries of life. And the other refers to absolute destitution. Well, it's a second word that's used here. These Christians in Smyrna were absolutely destitute. Now, the reason for their poverty wasn't, wasn't given. Some have suggested it was simply because the Christians came from the lower classes of society. But I think more is involved than that. There's a good chance their poverty was a direct result of discrimination and economic persecution. If their faith was illegal, they would have lost their protection under the law. And their goods would have been fair game to anyone strong enough to take it. They would have therefore been destitute of all worldly goods. But, as Jesus notes in a parenthesis, they were rich in other ways. They were rich in faith. They were rich in spiritual treasure. Their spiritual wealth, however, didn't insulate them from the slanderous accusations of a hostile religious community. The antagonism of the Jews that hounded Paul's every move some 40 years before hadn't subsided at all. If anything, it had intensified. The Jewish community in Smyrna went even so far as to accept the gods of Rome to be able to bring accusation against the church. While stirring up the crowds to execute Polycarp, they cried, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of Christians, the puller down of our gods. Jews were saying that. The puller down of our gods, who teach numbers not to sacrifice, nor to worship. No doubt they helped to keep alive the six ever-reoccurring slanders against Christians that continually fanned the flames of persecution. Namely, that they were cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. That their love feasts were orgies. That they were intent on breaking up families because converts were often estranged from their families. That they were atheists because they had no visible gods. That they were politically disloyal because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. And that they were arsonists because they were continually talking about the fires of judgment and how the world would be destroyed by fire. Now, the Jews knew these things weren't true. But their prejudice overcame their reason and their sense of honesty, and they did all they could to destroy Christianity. In doing so, they were fighting against the God they claimed to worship. And the risen Christ here noted that they said they were Jews, but they really weren't. And their actions proved that they were not the children 
of God. They may have been able to trace their ancestry back to Abraham, but they weren't legitimate heirs of Abraham. For as Paul so clearly states in Galatians, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And that, I might add, reveals a primary flaw with theories of the last days that teach that God still has a special purpose for the Jews. And that the modern nation of Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy and will be the stage where the final acts of history will be played out. Now, any theory of revelation that sets up two plans, one for Christians and one for Jews, ignores the plain teaching of Galatians 3.28 that in God's eyes there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Greek. That all are one. In Christ Jesus. So those in Smyrna who claimed to be God's people, who claimed to be Jews, really weren't. And their synagogues, therefore, weren't synagogues of God. They were synagogues of Satan. So Jesus called them. They were serving him and his purposes, not God's, at least not directly. But God knew what was going on. He knew all that the Christians were going through, and that in itself must have been a relief because some had no doubt assumed that God had forsaken them or that had been too busy to notice what they're going through. And isn't that our first thought? When God doesn't do something to shield us from hard times. We assume that he doesn't know what's going on or that he's just too busy to care. But here we're assured that God does know what's going on. Even when he doesn't step in and do what we'd like to see him do. And he seldom makes known to us his reasons for allowing calamity to come into our lives. He didn't explain it to Job. He just said, in effect, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of the situation. Obviously, many people today need to hear that word of assurance. God is in control. He knows what's going on. He's in control. That's what the risen Christ says to those in Smyrna. He says, hang on, I'm in control, and the end is in sight. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Our Lord doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't promise anyone a rose garden. He begins by saying, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's already said, I know what you're going through. He's talked about their hard times. He says, now, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Even more suffering it was in their immediate future. The slander and pressure and economic hardship that they'd been experiencing would soon give way to imprisonment. 
and even death. Christ revealed to them that the devil was about to cast some of them into prison. Now, the word for devil is actually slanderer. So whether Satan himself is in view here or the Jewish slanderers as his agents, we can't be certain. But one thing is for sure, Satan would be behind it. Just as he was behind the testing of Job, so would he be behind the testing that was about to come upon the Christians of Smyrna. And also, as we learn from Job, God allows Satan to go about this kind of testing. Because what Satan views as a way of destroying faith, God sees as a way to test it, to temper it, to make it even stronger. So even when Satan is testing, God's purposes are being served. And as we never forget that even though Satan is given the freedom to test and try us, his freedom is always limited. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where he said that God would not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to withstand. He knows our limits even better than we do. And he will never allow us to be pushed so far that we have no choice. We sometimes think he does. We struggle with that. But he's promised that he knows our limits. He will never allow us to be pushed so far that we have no choice in the matter. He limits what Satan can do. And even here, Christ assures the Christians that their tribulation will come to an end. He says they'll be cast into prison and have tribulation for ten days. Now, I don't believe that means they were going to be put in prison, tortured for ten days, and then released. I don't even believe the ten days should be viewed as, as literal ten days. Ten was a number that represented a full yet limited period of time. And I think that's what Christ is saying here. He's saying that their tribulation will be severe, but it won't last forever. The eleventh day is coming. I like that phrase. I was, when I was reading this over, I thought that'd be a great name for a Christian rock group. The eleventh day. The eleventh day is coming. The end is in sight. Now, for some, that end may have seemed worse than the tribulation. The end of imprisonment was very often death. Rome was not in the custom of keeping prisoners for long. They were usually detained only until they could be sentenced to death or set free. And Christ knew some of the Christians would not be set free, at least not by Rome. Some were going to die a martyr's death. But his promise to them was be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. His promise was not to keep them from death, but to take them through death, into life. 
be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The promise to those who die in the faith is the crown of life. Now, obviously, this isn't a literal crown here on earth and probably not in heaven. Some have suggested that the rewards in heaven will actually be in the form of crowns, that the crown of righteousness mentioned by Paul and the crown of glory mentioned by Peter and the crown of life mentioned here are literal crowns that we'll wear on the streets of gold, but I think that's most unlikely. I believe the crown of life is life itself. Life is the promise to those who die in the faith. Eternal life. For as our Lord promises here, those who overcome shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Death. In Revelation 21.8, it's pictured as the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And tell your neighbors you heard a fire and brimstone sermon on Mother's Day. See what they think of that. It's the eternal punishment that awaits those who have chosen to cut themselves off. From the presence of God. Now, whether it's going to be a literal lake of fire and brimstone or not, I don't know. I do know it'll be a horrible place because nothing good will be there. Everything that is good and lovely will be in the presence of God. For He's the source of all love and goodness. Hell, therefore, will be completely void of any of the attributes of God, and that will make it literally a most ungodly place. Jesus compared it to Gehenna, the dump outside Jerusalem that crawled with maggots and vermin, where garbage fires were constantly burning. John saw it as a lake of fire and brimstone. Perhaps the most gracious way to picture it is simply as the second death. The death that eternally cuts off one from the presence of God. The promise held out to Christians facing death in Smyrna and elsewhere is that if we will be faithful until death, we will avoid the second death. Now, that actually takes much of the fear out of the prospects of death. For to face The wrath of man, even death itself, is small compared with the prospects of suffering the judgment of God. Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John and later an elder in the church at Smyrna, knew this to be true. When told to curse the name of Christ and make sacrifices to Caesar, he simply responded, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Then, when the proconsul threatened him with burning, Polycarp replied, 
You threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. What are you waiting for? Come. Do what you will. An 86-year-old man saying that to his executioner. Come. Do what you will. When he said that publicly in the amphitheater, the crowd went into a rage. And even the Jews, who contrary to the law were there on the Sabbath, rushed from their seats to gather wood and kindling for the fire. When they were about to bind him to the stake, Polycarp said, leave me as I am. For he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved without the security you will give by the nails. So they left him loosely bound in the flames. And Polycarp prayed his great prayer. O Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, God of angels and powers, and of all creation, and of the whole family of the righteous who live before thee, I bless thee that thou hast granted unto me this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ for the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I today be received among them before thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou, the God without falsehood and of truth, hast prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled. For this reason, I also praise thee for all things. I bless thee. I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved child, through whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages that are to come. Amen. With that, he died. Never to die again. For while unbelievers die only to find another death, believers die and find eternal life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, that crown doesn't come cheap. It cost our Lord his life. And it may require that we wear a crown of thorns for a time. But that crown will be ours if we'll surrender our all to him and be faithful unto death.